Chapter thirty eight of the Grell Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The Grell Mystery by Frank Froust. Chapter thirty eight. For a second or a trifle more, a dead silence followed Ivan's denunciation. Heldon foiled back towards the door, dragging with him a chair which he had clutched with some idea of using it as a shield, should there be a rush. There arose an angry snarl among the gamblers, for with them suspicion was quick. A rush of crimson had swept across Ivan's face at the first alarm. He ejaculated something excitedly in Russian, and then went on in English. "'He is a police officer. I know him. It is the man Foyle of Scotland Yard.' At the mention of the word police, the hubble died down a little. Heldon Foyle, leaning quietly on the back of the chair, took advantage of the lull. "'Yes, I am a police officer,' he admitted confidently. "'The place is surrounded. It will pay you to behave yourselves. You, over there, put that knife away, do you hear?' The order was sharp and authoritative, and the Greek, in whose hand the detective had caught the gleam of steel, thrust it back hastily into the sheath at his belt. There were men there who would have thought little of murder, and Foyle knew that once they were roused to fighting pitch he stood little chance. At the first sign of flinching on his part they would be on him like a pack of wolves. He held them for the moment only, as a lion-tamer holds his beasts under control, by fearless, domineering assumption of authority. They were like a flock of sheep. Only two men he feared, Ivan and Keller. Both were men above the average intelligence, and both had more reason to fear the law than the others. If either of them took the initiative, he might be placed in an ugly position. He felt for his whistle while they remained inactive, uncertain. "'Let's teach the dog a lesson,' hissed a venomous voice, that of Keller. "'He's trying to bluff us.' "'Boot him, boys,' incited Ivan, edging forward, and so creating a movement towards the detective. Heldon Foyle put his whistle between his teeth and gripped the heavy chair with both hands. As the rush came, he blew the whistle three times in the peculiar arrangement of long and short blasts that is the special police call, and swung the chair down with all his force on the leading man. It was Keller.' The gaming-housekeeper dropped, stunned, and the detective swept the chair sideways, and so forced a clear space about himself. Again the whistle thrilled out, and Ivan, dodging sideways, seized one of the legs of Foyle's unwieldy weapon. Menacing faces besieged the detective on all sides. Other hands assisted the Russian to hold the chair, and still no help came. Once the door opened, and the wrinkled leathern face of a Chinaman protruded through the slit, took in the scene with quick understanding, and disappeared. That was all the notice taken of the row by the habitues of the opium den on the high floor. The two or three clients who were stretched on the low couches were either entirely under the influence of the drug, or too listless to worry about anything short of an earthquake, if even that would have aroused them. It was with small hope that the superintendent sounded his whistle again. A heavy blow on the face laid open his cheek, and he saw the little red-headed man who had slipped on his heavy brass knuckle-duster dodge back into the crowd. He relinquished his hold of the chair and defended himself with his hands. He carried a pistol in his pocket, but imbued with the traditions of the London police, he would not use a lethal weapon save in the last extremity. Inch by inch he sidled along the wall, fighting all the while until he reached the corner. Here the crowd could only come at him from the front." A knife was thrown, and a bottle crashed against his shoulder. The crisis had come. He dropped his guard, and his hand closed over his pistol. Those nearest him recoiled as the muzzle was thrust into their faces. "'He daren't shoot,' insisted a voice, which Foyle recognised as that of Ivan. In fact, the jibe was partly true. The detective had himself well in hand, and he knew that even though he were justified, a wounded man would lead to an inquiry which at the very least would prevent his going on with the Grell investigation for some time." but to let the taunt pass would invite disaster. He dropped the weapon to his thigh, forefinger extended along the barrel to help his aim, and pressed the trigger with his second finger twice. The reports were deafening in the confined space of the room, and one man put his hand to his head with a sharp cry. 
He did not have disturbed himself, for the bullets had passed over him and were buried in the opposite wall. "'We'll see whether I daren't fire,' said Foyle grimly. "'Come on, who'd like to be the first? There was no answer to his challenge, for from below came the sound of a crash and the quick tread of many men racing up the stairs. One or two of the gamblers turned white, and Foyle felt the tension of his nerves relax. Half a dozen men, headed by Green and Penny, were rushing into the room. A little gurgling laugh burst from the superintendent, and he waved his hand about the room. "'You see, Penny, it could be done single-handed. That is Ivan over there. Take good care of him, Green. Keller is that man knocked out down there.' And swaying, he crashed forward to the floor in a dead faint." When he came round, he was lying on a couch with his injured face and shoulder neatly bandaged. There were only two other persons in the room, Green and one of the local detectives, who were systematically making an inventory of everything in the room. The superintendent struggled to a sitting position, and the movement brought Green to his side. "'Hello, Green,' said the superintendent cheerfully. "'You've got em all away, I see. How long have I been lying here?' "'Matter of half an hour. This is only a case of loss of blood, I think. You must have been bleeding for some time before we broke in on the tea party. We put some first-aid bandages on.' "'I'm all right,' said Foyle, rising stiffly. "'What happened? You were a deuce of a time answering my whistle.' "'We tried the wrong door first, and it's my belief that nothing short of dynamite would move it. It's steel-lined, and with all the bolts pushed home we stood no chance. We gave it up after a while and tried the other. Luckily that was not bolted.' "'I know. I left it like that purposely.' "'Well, we didn't know. By that time we got thirty uniformed men down here, and they followed us up. Once we got the door down and found the chap you'd trust behind it, we had no trouble worth mentioning, except with Master Ivan, who fought like a wildcat. We got the cuffs on him at last, but even then it took four men to get him away. Penny is down at the station, waiting till you come before charging him. What is it to be, attempt to murder?' "'No, I don't think we can get a conviction on that,' answered Foyle. "'There's plenty up against them. Unlawful wounding, assaulting a police officer in the execution of his duty, frequenting a gaming-house, and, of course, Ivan could be charged with the Waverley affair, if we find it necessary now. I see you've started running over the house. Only just started. We were waiting for the divisional surgeon to see to you and three men who are sleeping like logs in the opium joint upstairs. The Chinaman seems to have vanished. At any rate, he can't be found. It's just about time this place was broken up. Keller took no chances with the bank. He picked up the fairy box. Now in the States, this kind of thing would not go. It's a two-card needle-tell swindle. That's done with fifty-four cards to the pack, isn't it? asked Foyle indifferently, handling the box. I've seen something like it before. The dealer is warned of the approach of duplicate cards by a tiny needle-point jumping out of one side of the box. That's it. Well, all that will have to be explained when the case comes on for trial. I'm more interested in Ivan just now. It's something to have him under lock and key. I'll leave you here to handle the remainder of the business and get down to the station. No, I'll not wait for the doctor. I feel perfectly fit now." In spite of his assertion, the superintendent felt a little dizzy when he reached the open air. A big crowd filled the street, and a dozen reporters who had been held sternly at bay by the constables on duty at the gambling-house pounced on him determinedly. He laughingly waved them aside, but they would not be denied, and while they walked at his side gave a succinct account of what had happened, omitting all reference to Ivan Abramovich. "'New thing for you to come all the way to the East End to take charge of a gambling raid, isn't it?' asked Gerald, the wire-man, in a tone that told of a shrewd suspicion of something underlying. "'Oh, it's been an experience,' said Foyle lightly, indicating his bandaged head. "'I've told you everything I know now, boys. If there's anything else you can use, I'll have it at the yard presently. So long.' The journalists melted away, and Foyle presently found himself in a dingy back street where the local police station was situated. Here also a crowd of men and women had gathered, and the reserve men at the door were repelling eager women who, not knowing who had been taken in the raid, feared that their husbands might be included, and were anxious to know the worst, for news of that kind spreads rapidly.' A motor-car standing without told the superintendent of Sir Hilary Thornton's presence, and the assistant commissioner was the first person he saw as he entered the place. Thornton came forward with hand outstretched. 
"'Thank God, Foyle, we had a rumour at the yard that you had been badly hurt. "'I see you've been knocked about a bit. "'What made you take a hand yourself down here? "'Couldn't you leave a raid to be carried out by the local folk?' "'I didn't come down here especially for that reason,' smiled the superintendent. "'I wanted to get hold of Ivan Abramovich, and everything else was purely incidental.' "'They're waiting for you to settle who shall be charged with what,' said Thornton. "'Be as quick as you can, and I'll wait and give you a lift back in the car. "'I'll not be happy till I've heard all about this.' The two passed into the charge-room, where Penny was in conversation with the superintendent of the division. In reply to a question, he thought for a little. "'We've got eighteen men in all, sir,' he answered. "'It would have been fifty if we'd been able to bring our coup off at night. "'Very well. Have them all in except Abramovich and Keller. "'I will pick out those I want charged with assault or who I think were mixed up with Keller. "'The remainder might be let out on bail after you have verified their addresses.' The prisoners were ushered into the room, a shame-faced, sullen, dispirited gang now. Penny and a clerk passed along the line, taking their names, while Foyle scrutinised their faces. Finally, the superintendent touched four men on the shoulder, one after the other. One was Jim, the doorkeeper, another the red-haired man with the big chest, the third and fourth two men who had been prominent in the attack. Penny put a tick against their names, and the whole of the prisoners, many of whom had broken into voluble protest and appeal, were taken back to the cells. Foyle had determined to leave the business of charging them to Green and Penny. End of chapter 38